The following talk was originally podcast on September 25th, 2020. Welcome to the Buddha Sasana Podcast. This talk was given by Bhikkhu Chintika in Austin, Texas. The Buddha taught suffering and the ending of suffering. His teachings were stringently parsimonious and practical. It made sense that he would teach us about craving the origin of suffering because understanding such factors and internalizing their understanding through practice makes a difference in how we deal with everyday experience. We see the dangers of craving. We become dispassionate about craving, experience revulsion with regard to craving, and abandon craving, and suffering ends. These are factors of phenomenal experience that we can learn to respond to in our practice directly as they arise in more skillful ways. So why would the Buddha teach biology? I don't mean bodily awareness, which he certainly had important things to say about, but with things like the nature of conception in the womb and about the composition of the psychophysical organism. Many claim that he gave such teachings prominent roles at key junctures in his teachings. But did he? Biology lies within the processes of the natural world that are largely beyond immediate experience and generally continue to play out, at least within this life, regardless of our practice. Such things, if they are valuable at all, belong to theory and not praxis. I want to argue in this brief talk that the Buddha was not a biologist. The conception of the psychophysical organism, also known as body and mind or materiality and mentality, are traditionally accorded a prominent place in the Twelve Links of Dependent Co-Arising. Recall that here ignorance gives rise to volitional formations, Formations give rise to consciousness. Consciousness gives rise to name and form, and name and form to the six sense spheres. And all this unleashes contact, feeling, craving, and the rest of the human pathology. An often cited scriptural source for the biological interpretation of this is the following passages in the Mahanidana Sutta. If consciousness were not to descend into the mother's womb, would name and form take shape in the womb? No, Lord. If the consciousness of a young boy or girl were to be cut off, would name and form grow up, develop, and reach maturity? No, Lord. 
the most common traditional interpretation of this passage is that at conception, consciousness travels into the womb carrying the yet-to-be-realized results of karmic activity, which are formations from the previous life, to unite with the fetus, which is name and form, and thereby to produce a viable psychophysical organism. The six sense bases, eye, ear, and so on, then grow in the fetus to produce a capability for contact with the things of the world in the present life. This interpretation is widespread or even dominant in much of the Buddhist world and is the basis of what is called the three lives model of dependent co-arising, in which a second birth then occurs in the penultimate of the twelve links. Although this account provides a compelling interpretation of the passage I just cited, two issues should give us pause, which arise in light of a broader understanding of Dharma. The first issue is that consciousness in this biological interpretation seems to have little to do with how consciousness is described virtually everywhere else in the Buddha's discourses. The second issue is that the biological interpretation seems to be theoretical speculation and not even interesting or clever theoretical speculation with little direct relevance to practice. The first issue is that this biological account attributes to consciousness properties that are dissimilar from the common descriptions of consciousness found in the suttas. Presumably the formations which represent karmic activities from the previous life are somehow carried in a package of consciousness that then descends into the womb to consummate the conception of the psychophysical organism. The consciousness commonly mentioned in the suttas, in contrast, simply arises and disappears contingent on the arising and falling of other phenomenal factors. No mention is made of the capacity for packaging karma nor for the endurance of spatial or spatial presence necessary to ship that package into the womb. It's simply not mentioned anywhere in the suttas. Each instance of consciousness in the suttas is rather lightweight, arising contingently in an instant within one of the sense spheres on top of what other experiential phenomena are happening, and then disappearing in an instant. Accordingly, the later Theravada tradition distinguishes the special consciousness involved in biological processes from the normal consciousness, calling the special heavyweight consciousness patisandhi vinyana, rebirth-connecting consciousness, a term actually unknown in the suttas. This naturally raises the question, does this heavyweight consciousness appear only once at the moment of conception, or is it carried along throughout life? The second part of the passage about the young boy or girl would indicate that it's carried far beyond conception, unless at this point we've reverted to referring to lightweight consciousness. 
The impression we easily get from a biological perspective is of a heavyweight consciousness serving as a kind of inner essence necessary to sustain the viability of the psychophysical organism throughout life and into the next. Now, here is where things get particularly puzzling. In a well-known passage in the Mahatanha Sankhya Sutta, the Buddha chastises a monk, Sati, in no uncertain terms for holding a pernicious view very similar to the biological interpretation just described. His view is, As I understand the Dharma taught by the Blessed One, it's the very same consciousness which transmigrates and not another. This view is roundly condemned by the other monks and by the Buddha. The Buddha asks Sati to explain what he thinks this transmigrating consciousness is. It is that which speaks, feels, and experiences the result of good and bad kamma, here and there. Consciousness had become reified into a self for Sati. The Buddha accordingly clarifies that he has only taught a consciousness that is contingent, is dependently arisen, and arises in one or another of the sense spheres. That is, he has only taught lightweight consciousness. It's clear that the biological account is easily subject to this kind of reification, if not of consciousness, then of name and form, which is commonly treated as the rather stable psychophysical organism carried through this particular life. The sutta about the wayward monk Sati is quite long and complex, showing evidence of compilation from various sources. But further on, it presents a surprising, more detailed, and more obviously biological discussion of conception in the womb. Monks, the descent of the embryo occurs with the union of three things. When there is a union of the mother and father, the mother is in her season and a gandabha is present. Then, with this union of three things, the descent of the embryo occurs. It's important to note that this passage shares none of the significant vocabulary of the descent of consciousness passage. In this last account, there is no mention of consciousness nor of name and form. The occurrence of the Gandabha is obscure in this context, but presumably in the folk culture of the Buddha's time was understood as the heavyweight entity involved in conveying the karmic continuity of a former life in other schools of religious thought. This relationship of the descent of embryo passage to the earlier discredited account of sati is not explicitly stated, and its purpose is obscured by the intervening material in the sutta. However, I dare guess that its function is not to speculate anew on biological processes, after all, the material is certainly not original to the Buddha and not particularly original at all, but rather 
to acknowledge that there exists outside of the Dharma an account of the underlying mechanisms of birth, and then to reassert that that is not what consciousness is about in the Buddha's teaching, hopefully facilitating the relinquishing of sati's pernicious view. It has no further function. The second issue in this biological account of the descent of consciousness passage that should give us pause in terms of a broader understanding of Dharma has to do with the possible purpose of such a teaching, given the Buddha's poor regard for philosophical or natural philosophical speculation. Even as a philosophical theory, it has no more imagination than the descent of embryo account. It provides no material for contemplative practice that is teachings that can be observed in moment-to-moment examination of experiential phenomena, nor therefore for the development of knowledge and vision of things as they really are. It may be useful for the practitioner to understand that there is a life-to-life continuity in practice, but that is already quite clearly expressed in the final links of dependent co-arising and in many other texts. Moreover, the three lives model seems to trivialize dependent co-arising. Dependent co-arising is intended to be a comprehensive account of the human pathology arising within the phenomenal world and equated with the entirety of the Dharma itself. It's alleged to be profound and difficult to understand. Yet, within the Three Lives model, we come across material useful in the present life for examination of experientially verifiable phenomena only at the sixth link, which is contact, of just 12 links. If dependent co-arising is so succinct and profound, why would the Buddha clutter it with an unobservable, biological account of the conception of the human fetus. How does this account help us end suffering if we cannot observe it in day-to-day or meditative experience and if we can do nothing to disrupt the links it occupies? On the contrary, the Three Lives model encourages reification of a self or a person for it introduces a fixed substantial and substantiated psychophysical organism, which may be conditionally determined and impermanent, which remains fixed for the duration of this life with no way to remove it. On the other hand, if these early links of dependent co-arising have been misunderstood, what unacknowledged profound teachings do these links bear that have been obscured by the Three Lives model? In fact, there are alternative proposals that attribute far more depth to these links. I'm presently working myself on a book on dependent co-arising in which I will cover these alternatives. I hope to begin including dependent co-arising among the topics of my podcasts in the coming months. In short, it's hard to fathom why the Buddha would teach the mechanism for conception in the womb. And the interpretation under which he allegedly does this is difficult to reconcile with the rest of Dharma. 
So what did the Buddha mean by the passage at the beginning of this talk, which seems to describe a biological process of conception and subsequent flourishing of a psychophysical organism? Let's read it again. If consciousness were not to descend into the mother's womb, would name and form take shape in the womb? No, Lord. If the consciousness of a young boy or girl were to be cut off, would name and form grow up, develop, and reach maturity? No, Lord. What was the Buddha trying to communicate here? The full context in which this passage occurs is not one in which we would expect an exposition on biology or conception. It's rather in the midst of a walk through the links of dependent co-arising in reverse order. For each adjacent pair in the chain, the Buddha has been arguing, link X gives rise to link Y by establishing that in any situation, the following holds. If there were no link X, no link Y would appear. This is consistent throughout the text. And this formula is well understood for the conditionality at work independent co-arising. For instance, birth gives rise to sickness, old age, and death, because in any situation, if there were no birth, then sickness, old age, and death would not arise. Or, feeling gives rise to craving, because in any situation, if there were no feeling, no craving would arise. The more immediate context in which the passage above occurs is one in which the causal relation, consciousness gives rise to name and form, has just come up for examination. We therefore fully expect, in accordance with the exposition of the links previously discussed, that the Buddha would want next to establish, if there were no consciousness, no name and form would appear. And this is exactly what he does. However, in this particular case, there is a kink. It happens to be the case that consciousness and name and form are tightly intertwined. It is hard to tease them apart. And in fact, the same sutta will go on to argue for the simultaneous reciprocal causal relation, name and form and consciousness give rise to each other. Now, I should mention that name and form, if it is not something biological, is understood alternatively to range over the experiential world to which consciousness responds and which consciousness helps construct. So in order to argue that if there were no consciousness, no name and form would appear, the Buddha has to consider a situation in which there is no prior consciousness nor prior name and form, an unusual circumstance for two factors that are in constant orbit around each other. To do this, the Buddha imagines the individuated phenomenal world of a particular person at the point at which consciousness is about to first arise in that person's life, which naturally places that person in the womb. He then asks, 
if there were no consciousness in that situation, could name and form appear? The answer is no. That suffices to establish causality. But the Buddha doesn't stop there. He also chooses in this complex case to establish another means of verifying conditionality by arguing, if consciousness ceases, name and form will cease. To do this, he asks us to consider a later point when this individual is a boy or girl, at which point sentience is well established and asks, if consciousness were to cease, would name and form continue to mature? That is, would our world of experience continue to grow and develop? The answer is again, no. His argument is complete. This is the simple logic of the Buddha's argument. It says nothing interesting about biology other than to presuppose that sentience first arises during the period of gestation in the womb, not necessarily, by the way, at biological conception. I don't think the Buddha was a biologist.